Hi, I am Cassie. And I'm Evelyn. Welcome to the Stream of Life podcast, where we share stories that inspire actions for peace, security, and justice. Dear listeners, today, uh, Evelyn and Cassie, we are interviewing Dr. Kauza Hamed. Dr. Kauza, thank you very much for accepting to be part of this podcast. And you are welcome. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Could you please tell us about who you are? Thank you so much, Evelyn, for this invitation. As I said, uh, this is a very interesting question, actually, who you are. And I often wondered how to respond holistically about myself, because I think that is the biggest challenge of one's life to know who you are, actually. Well, I'm not going to delve into this philosophical uh, you know, nightmare, but very simply speaking, I would echo with my very favorite historian, Yuval Noah Hariri's book, Homo Sapiens. So I am a Homo Sapiens with little bit of enlarged brain. I was born in Bangladesh, passed most of my life there, and then suddenly decided, like earlier Homo Sapiens, that possibly out of Kenya, there is another world. And I started traveling and I ended up in Winnipeg and got enrolled in PhD program, finished PhD and started practicing my academic knowledge into practical field. And finally, I ended up with a small not-for-profit organization, Conflict and Resilience Research Institute Canada. And using this platform, I conduct a number of researches, as you can find in the website. But our current signature project is studying displacement with particular focus on Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh, Myanmar. So in short, this is who I am. Thank you. Very interesting. Thank you very much for that. Dr. Hamed, could you please share with us your story? We know that you are a scholar and also a former peacekeeper. Why did you become a scholar and a peacekeeper? Because you have really a very interesting combo. Yes, I think so. And uh, I kind of encountered this question as a couple of times when I presented papers in some of the seminars in Canada and abroad. So, dear audience, I have a military background, a pure military background. At the age of 20, I was commissioned in Bangladesh Army and served there till 2010, and actually prior to my migration to Canada. So, uh, during that period of my life, I definitely, as you understand, as a military officer, I had very set job, set tasking, and I was groomed as, as a leader through various institutions. But just a qualitative difference about Bangladesh Army and you know other standing armies, Bangladesh Army is purely defensive in nature. And Bangladesh Army is actually, as, as we speak now, is the largest troop contributing nations in the United Nations system. And since 1988, Bangladesh Army started sending their officers and men into peacekeeping operations. So in, a, in that perspective, I would say Bangladesh Army is very much into peacekeeping and peacebuilding activities. So what I, during this tenure in my career, I had been to uh, Turkey for military courses. And at that time, I was kind of exposed to Cyprus conflict. And as you know, there's a UN mission there still running. It's called Anfisip. And I was uh, kind of in, in the northern part, the Turkish part, which is called Turkish Cypriot. At that part, I was traveling there a couple of times and individually to the Greek Cypriot later on. So 
I was exposed to that conflict and later on a part of Nagorno-Karabakh conflict because as you know, Turkey supports Azerbaijan against Armenian side of the things. So we had actually Azerbaijani officers in the course with me. So I listened to their stories about the conflict and their views over the Nagorno-Karabakh enclave itself, which at that time uh, under control of Armenia. So I was exposed to this kind of international conflict quite early in my life, I would say. And later on, I was deployed from my uh, military to the UN mission in the Western Sahara for a whole one year, uh, 13 months uh, assignment. And it was more detailed exposure to the conflict, to the people in the conflict and the victims and how the structure of UN works on ground, because these are field missions, as you know. So this kind of things sort of, I would say, um, triggered an, an inquisitiveness, uh, curiosity you know, very innate human, you know, condition. And I was kind of uh, interested to understand the academic side of it because it was all military. And, you know, military has a way of understanding things which is different than, you know, academia. So I enrolled myself in uh, Master of Philosophy, MPhil uh, level course in Dhaka University. And fortunately, we had similar discipline, peace and conflict studies there too. And that kind of, opened up a whole new, I would say, world for me. And I was pretty much convinced around 2008 and nine that I need a bigger platform to study, to research, to work independently, which is sort of not very much congruent with the military style and military life. Because, you know, by nature, these are different than what we have as a civilian life. So I finally decided to leave as as for this the condition of being scholar or not i mean i am very much i would say that i am an inquisitive person uh, to learn more and uh, i do write quite a bit in terms of disseminating information from that point if you kindly consider me as a scholar that is totally your generosity but um, to answer activism and all i think i am more onto you know, the research and advocacy side than that of going in the front line of activism. But overall, I'm very much passionate about uh, conflict issues. And my PhD dissertation was about conflict issues. Uh, I'm more into the conflict issues and how you can transform uh, conflicts non-violently. That is my primary goal of research and inquiry. Thank you. Thank you. So you have shared with us about your experiences in the military with Bangladesh and you talk about the unique characteristic of the Bangladesh uh, military, which focus more on peace building. So can you share with us your experiences as a peacekeeper? What was the most rewarding experiences as a peacekeeper and what do you think are some challenges that peacekeeper normally face? Thank you, um, Casey, for your, I would say, very important questions with regards to the whole operations. And for the viewers as well, let me share that we started a series of webinars, actually, from Crick's platform. We invited um, scholars like uh, our host today, Evelyn, Professor Evelyn, uh, to talk about uh, UN peacekeeping issues. So this question is really uh, goes into that you know, category. Bangladesh Army, um, as you have just heard, that it's little uh, different in terms of its participation in world affairs 
it is never a part of intervention military like US and other superpowers. It is purely defensive. It is only uh, created uh, just to defend the sovereignty of a nation, which is very typical to a nation state, you know, a modus operandi. So that is its core function. But since 1988, it started participating in UN mission. And over these years, or almost over three decades, Bangladesh military has gained a lot of experience, field-level experience only, by sending its troops and officers in so many missions, so many. And if you just visit the UN peacekeeping uh, operation, UNPKO, in, in the UN system, you will find the list of countries that contribute troops and etc. You will see Bangladesh's name hovering between first and second position for over many, many years. So I would also like to um, let the, uh, I mean, the readers uh, or listeners know that Bangladesh has also one of the finest peacekeeping training operations center and school in the world. To my knowledge, there are only three such schools there. And one is in, of course, in Canada, one of the oldest uh, Pearson peacekeeping schools. And uh, the second largest is in Bangladesh, actually. And I was also trained before the deployment. The most rewarding experience as a peacekeeper, I would only refer to my experience because it varies from mission to mission context to context. So I would only say that I was very fortunate to be uh, deployed in a mission in Western Sahara because it was not a hot conflict, as you see. But I understand uh, the things have changed over the two decades. And very recently, three, four months ago, uh, the conflict again flared up in the southern part. And I do keep in touch with a number of peacekeepers from Bangladesh. And that is how I keep remain you know, updated about the conflict. But when I joined in 2001, January, it was not uh, at this stage of very hot conflict. It was kind of, as I say, cold peace, you know, uh, the word or the phrase I can use. So at that time, our basic job was to monitor ceasefire, which was in place since 1991. And again, I'd be saying that I'm super fortunate to be deployed onto the Polisario, the one of the you know, groups. So there are two groups, Royal Military Army or the Moroccan uh, intervention, Moroccan groups and the Royal Military Polisario groups supported by Algeria. So I was on the other side with the rebels. And the reason I say fortunate because I was with them seven months in the team sites and our basic job was to you know hang around with them and they used to accompany us in the patrols, his whole day patrol, uh, over seven, 800 kilometers travel each day. Um, so the relationship that I developed with the Polisarios, that was super rewarding. Uh, I even re- recall uh, our uh, military liaison officer, his name was Malua. So what happened is when I was uh, leaving the team site, because I was reassigned to forces headquarters later 2001. So he came and he said the one beautiful thing that I still remember. He said that, uh, he used to call me Ahmed, um, as you do. So he said that, can I borrow your uniform? I said, uh, fine, why do you want, because there are French officers, US officers, you know, Malaysia, it's a variety of officers, uh, we, 12, 11, 12 of them, and all we come from different countries. Why Bangladeshi uniform? Because it is very humble, you know, it's not like American patches and all these things, you know. Very humble, decent uniform, you know. He said, there is a, it's a symbolic reason. I said, what? He said that the relationship that you fostered within these seven months, I want to retain it. I want to continue it. 
And that is why I'm seeking uh, if you are kind enough to donate your uniforms. And of course, I did donate. And, and uh, he sent me a couple of photos later on because I stayed more five years, uh, five months in the forces headquarters. So uh, this, I think the most rewarding situation uh, is, is this relation, the trust. Because one of the basic jo- job of a peacekeeper is to build trust between these parties. Otherwise, you know, uh, nothing works. And dear audience, those who are listening, these conflicts are very old, you know, and as a peacekeeper, as an outsider, you just go there for a couple of weeks, months, and maximum a year. You see, you are an outsider. You are not an insider. You have the scopes of listening to various peoples. That's all. And I have seen on many, many occasions. So as a peacekeeper, you can take two approaches. One is I, I would call life affair. Oh, okay, fine. Stay sometimes. Drink and enjoy. Take the you know UN money and go back. So this is one approach you can take. And second approach you can take uh, is to learn about the situation, get involved with the people, build trust, go to them, uh, stay with them in their small tents, uh, drink tea and talk to them what they want in their future for their children and family and their community. So as a peacekeeper, you have these two options. And of course, I, I, I took the second options and possibly uh, the military liaison officer from Polisario meant this one. And it is the most rewarding experience for me. Thank you. Thank you very much. That is very interesting. And we are so privileged to have you who has been on the ground. Thank you. Thank yeah. you. Wow. Very interesting. And after today, we know that the conflict in Western Sahara is still going on. Sorry. And comparing it with all the conflicts, for example, in Mali, Central African Republic, the Democratic Republic of Congo, South Sudan, Abia, Darfur, all those conflicts are normally driven by resource exploitation. So then, how effective is peacekeeping when it comes to resolving resource-based wars? And uh, looking at the example of Western Sahara for all these years, the same applies to the Democratic Republic of Congo for over 20 years. Peacekeepers are there. Can we really still dream of peacekeeping becoming effective in resolving such resource-based conflicts? Thanks for the question. I think it's a very profound question and very intellectually driven question. And it needs really long research and advocacy because just to start with these questions as the host mentioned, I am grappling with this question that what is the effectiveness of peacekeeping operations unless it contributes to the conflict transformation? What is the point? And this is the case in example of Minurso mission that I participated. It's called Minurso in French uh, because it's a French uh, dominated mission. So the point is in a simple answer, simple straight answer is that unless peacekeeping operations do contribute to peace building and conflict transformation, I personally don't believe peacekeeping missions are necessary. And to this end, uh, dear audience, let me tell you that I did research on this issue to a substantial extent. And uh, both the host and I, we were uh, in a CIC event a couple of years ago in Winnipeg when I presented a case that 
Look at the four long-lasting UN mission, peacekeeping missions are on ground, uh, which have achieved nothing to my, I mean, uh, to my assessment, nothing, zero achievement. For example, 1948 Kashmir mission is still ongoing. For example, the uh, Lebanese mission, for example, uh, Minurso mission. What have they achieved in terms? Let's have a close scrutiny. Somebody should ask that why do I have to pay for millions of dollars for these missions just to hold ground? And this is why the host's question is, first is, I don't uh, really see and I really wish that UN uh, and the bodies of UN should look closely about all those missions which have not achieved their mandates. And the tricky part here, dear audience, before I really forget that what UN does in terms of mandate, they fix a mandate before the mission is deployed. So what they do is they brainstorm and I hope they have all the systems of decision making and they arrive to a set of mandates before they proceed to UN Security Council's approval under Chapter 6 or 7. So these mandates with initial mandates and mission goes there. So after six months, there is a review of the mandates. And the force commanders on ground and all, all the people there, uh, so they send their feedback, okay, these mandates we have tried and could not achieve and all these things. And this is really perplexing for me to understand how come UN keeps extending or changing their mandates for 30, 40 years. UN peacekeeping operations for the referendum of Western Sahara in acronym MINURSO is there on ground since 1991. If you go back to the site of website of MINURSO, you will find their mandates. When I arrived after 10 years of the establishment of mission in 2001, I found a set of mandates which is not effective because it could not hold a referendum. The fundamental mandate of this mission is to hold a referendum. So does it take 30 years to hold a referendum? Dear audience, ask yourself. And if, if your employee cannot fulfill uh, the objective of you as an employer, would you really retain an employee for 30 years that for the sake of that, okay, he's trying. This is what is the UN's basic uh, approach to these missions. That, okay, let them try. I mean, with so much of money and having achieved nothing, and if you ask me as a former UN peacekeeper, let me be very clear. UN peacekeeping mission in Minurso have achieved zero over these years, nothing. And if you even ask me more deeper, I would, I would request you to look back three months, past three months event, why the conflict has flared up in the south, in the southern part, Aguanit area, why it happened. If the mission has achieved something in terms of trust building, confidence building measures and all, why it broke down after 30 years? So the quick and short answer is, I don't think it has achieved. And answering the other part of the host's question that resource, one of the main driver of conflicts in most of the Africa where the UN missions are deployed, Western Sahara is also a story of resource extraction by Morocco. And again, I'm just being honest here because if you look deeper, the uh, phosphate mines is under Moroccan control area. The whole uh, coast of fisheries where the tuna comes from, uh, including the, you know, the, the shores of Las Palmas Island, you know, this famous holiday resort, 
all these areas actually fall within Moroccan control. And the other side of the berm, what we call berm, the sand wall, it is absolutely desert. Nothing is there. I lived there for one and, and I, I, I remember everything because I flew with the helicopter so many hours for the patrolling purposes. So if you talk about this, this is actually one of the core reasons that drive conflict. And how do you disentangle this interest from these big countries like France, Spain, and Belgium and others? They're still there. You see, in, in, in Congo, in the Belgian Congo, Belgium is still there. So how do you disentangle, disentangle those things from conflict? I don't know. I don't have a clear answer to it because these are bigger uh, no, things. And dear audience, if I recall, we had a four-part series we jointly organized with the um, University of Netherlands at Hague. And we studied two cases, Rohingya genocide and the Baniyamulenge genocide. So same story, actually. So the resource, the intervention of colonial powers in the past and their remedies. And in Congo, there is a UN mission, full-scale serving UN mission. So let's ask what that UN mission has done for the Baniyamulenges. And could it really intervene anything? So I remember we invited an expert because I think he still serves in the UN or something. I can't remember exactly. And I do apologize if I misquote. But there was a reference that UN is not actually tasked to resolve conflict. UN is not. So if you study the mandates, UN is never tasked to resolve conflict. So the essential question is then why UN? So why we need UN intervention if it is not transforming or resolving the conflict itself? Thank you. Thank you so much. That's very interesting. Actually, an eye-opener, because when you look at the billions of dollars that go into peacekeeping, hand-in-hand hand with resource exploitation, <laughs> who is benefiting from all this? And it, be, it is really insanity that we continue to propagate something that has failed for generations. But of course, those who are benefiting, they have to ensure that the system goes on. Mm-hmm. 100%. And uh, may I just on an end note sort of thing, uh, you are so right because if you look at the UN system, I'm just trying to give you a glimpse of the logistical support that a film mission needs. It's a million dollar business, actually. There are a group of suppliers, those who supply, uh, including aircraft to vehicles to you name anything because all these missions are self-sustaining, Right. They need tents, they need air conditioning, they need food, they need fuel, they need vehicles, you know, X number of things. So you have to buy those things. So you need a supplier to supply those things. So there is a whole supply chain involved, including the local, you know, local, uh, what you call uh, businessmen and all. So this is what it is, because I remember in the CIC event, somebody just commented that, well, Mr. Ahmed, if you are so critical about UN and its ineffectiveness, but what about they are contributing to the local economy? And I was so surprised to um, get this comment because, <laughs> well, do you want UN to go there only to support local economy? And you see, when you say local economy, you are actually talking about only one side of the local economy, who is the dominating part in the conflict. Because the dominating group of the conflict actually controls the local economy, not the other part. And this is how you are actually exacerbating the conflict. Because you are empowering 
you are enriching the dominating group which is in control thank you very interesting so they are really businesses businesses as you, absolutely business there are so much companies even if you think about un satellite communication system how expensive it is and this is definitely you know tendered and somebody won it and you know french company for example is selling this satellite and Fr- france's role in the western sahara is highly debatable but look who's supporting all these equipment the french companies true <laughs> yeah yeah and as we have talked a number of times with dr hamed and even with ikasi uh you find that uh, for us who are working for peace and uh, conflict transformation we don't have money so it's like every day we have to knock our heads against the wall fighting a system that is kind of built to stay to ensure that the exploitation of resources continue but then how can we live like this i think we have to come to a point that injustices exploitation and maybe to be blunt stealing must be condemned the question is we are lacking that morality that ethics that propagated colonialism propagated slavery and now it is like key manipulated to look like key something positive in the form of peacekeeping is like they are there ensuring that the resources go into the interests of those who are again the so-called superpowers <laughs> and their corporations agreed evelyn agreed mm-hmm. yeah so i think we are going to end this podcast with this challenge how do we ensure that there's a royal peace how do we ensure liberation for vulnerable people how do we stop stealing and finally how do we ensure that peacekeeping becomes effective to ensure that it creates global peace and security thank you evelyn i would say that uh, there is an ongoing effort in the un system since 2004 if i'm not wrong trans formation and change of un structure in terms of global peace and peacekeeping operation etc i'm not sure what it is doing at this point in time because we have seen two to three un secretary generals uh, have changed their uh, places and i think you know sanity would prevail within this group but i don't i'm not very optimistic actually to to share with you frankly and with the audience i'm not very optimistic because when i look at the overall geopolitics on ground and then i extrapolate back to new york i see same reflections and i mean it goes without saying and i'm i'm sure tons of things have been written on this the structure of the un security council must be dissolved without dissolving the current un security council structure we we are not going to be optimistic in terms of global peace and conflict resolution this security council was structured after the immediately aftermath of the world war 2 based on the geopolitics of that era things have changed over 6 7 8 decades of world war 2 why on on the on the good side nobody even thinks of the changed realities and transform the even security council with this damning veto power you can't move forward a un security council resolution you can't 
And yes, you might invoke the change uh, in the General Assembly and all these things, but this takes months and months of the uh, you know effort of various groups. Take, for example, the Myanmar issue. And those who are following the Myanmar issues since 2017, at least, not before, 2017 at least, you have seen how it evolved. And from 1st February, the military has taken over whole country again. So where is the UN Security Council? Where is the unanimous decision of the UN Security Council is that military takeover cannot be accepted in the year of 2021? Where is that voice? Where, why China still says it is an internal affairs of a country? In today's globalized world, genocide cannot be an internal affair of a country. Cannot be. Genocide, crimes against humanity, must not be a sole discretion of a nation state. When it would come in the discussion table of UN, given the structure of the current UN system, and therefore I'm not optimistic. And you see, Evelyn, you are talking about peace, uh, conflict resolution, victims, and there are so many victims we are talking about, so many. And we have thought that this era is over, victims, but it has never been over. You know, every 10 years, you find separate group, group of victims coming around, and UN, UN is profoundly failing to intervene. And this is the basic problem, because unless you change the UN structure, and you see, um, my last point here is that in conflict, you need an intervention first. And then you fan out, you take peace building measures and et cetera, et cetera. This intervention is necessary. You do it through sanction, you do it through physical presence, you do it in whatever way you, you agree, number of countries, but you need an intervention. And peacekeeping operations, field operations are actually intervention on ground. So this intervention requires unanimous decision on certain fundamental values of universal uh, you know, human rights and other things. And as a, as a group of you know, humans, we could not come to a consensus which tantamounts crimes against humanity. And, and Evelyn, if you are not agreeing on this threshold discussion that this is the violation of human rights, how can you intervene? Thank you. Right. Thank you so much. That is very, very powerful. And actually, going back to the UN Security Council, you find that uh, among the Asian countries, there is only China. Africa doesn't have any representative, whereas today, mm -hmm. out of the 12 UN peacekeeping mission, six yeah. are in Africa. Mm -hmm. It's so ironical. Yes, yeah, true. I mean, this, this uh, rep representation is another you know, kind of dilemma in the UN system because in the permanent uh, UN Security Council and you have semi-permanent members, another 10, and if, even if you look at the 10 members, unfortunately, we are not. Canada is not part of the 10 even. So these groups, the semi-permanent ones, have not do not have the capacity to influence the decision of the veto members. So how do you make the balance of you know this power within this group? You can't actually. The 10 semi-permanent members have virtually, you know, they just attend and say yes, no, and they vote. But again, everything depends who is the veto power uh, authority. And China, Russia, every time they come out with whatever you, you speak about Myanmar conflict. So this is why the total you know, lack of representation from African continent 
is a fallacy because <laughs> you know half of the UN missions uh, are in in Africa, you know half of them, and this is why you know another important question comes out, uh, Evelyn, that even the UN intervenes. For example, in the case of East Timor, the intervention actually resulted into an independent country out of Indonesia. And if you talk about Sudan intervention, when UN had two two missions, in one in Darfur and on other on the south side, you see it ended up in in South Sudan being independent in 2003. So these are the, the actual questions that UN Security Councils and their members, you know, take part. And ironically, uh, China didn't say anything about Sudan because it had its port in South Sudan to trans, uh, transport its wells. So it is coming to this whole round, you know, circle back to their geopolitical interest of this UN security members. Very yeah. true. Thank you very much for that. And actually you find that even within the UN Security Council, those with veto power are also fighting to control the resources in those uh, what, conflict within countries. So then we are discovering that even that might might lateral approach resolving global conflicts has failed. Exactly. And and before I also kind of um, loses my uh, track, Evelyn, this another thing really interests me is responsibility to protect mm-hmm. convention. And we have seen uh, in in some of the global conflicts, for example, Libyan in, intervention. Actually, people. I mean, I mean, the whole UN Security Council was bypassed. And uh, Libyan intervention was done under R2P convention. And also, I mean, you can say that R2P is part of UN convention. That is true. But the whole mechanism of R2P is based on the coalition of willings, the willing nation states. And for Libya, we have seen how people join. So there are mechanisms outside UN for intervention. But the essential problem is, you know, um, uh, you are intervening into a sovereign country. And then that becomes another big issue, whether uh, you have the rights to intervene in a sovereign country, even there is a genocide, even there is a a proven human right violation. So these are the questions that really international bodies and UN is the most appropriate body should be discussing in earnest. Thank you so much, Dr. Hamed. These are key issues. We will continuously come back to you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much again for the information you have shared with us and for always being Thank a you. big supporter of our project. Thank you. Thank 100%. You. Always. Thank you. Yeah. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for stories to come. If you have stories you would like to share, email us at streamoflifeblog at gmail.com. Violence, insecurity, and injustice everywhere is a threat to peace, security, and justice everywhere. We are so interconnected than we imagine or wish to believe.